My message today is called Jesus, the author of authority. And when we hear that word authority, it can do different things to some of us. Some of us can welcome it, be like, yes, love a bit of authority, either for themselves, they get a bit power crazy, or they just love to be led by other people. Others, we might think, oh, authority. They might fear that. They might shudder at that word. But authority, you might think of a teacher, you might think of a parent, you might think of a policeman, you might think of someone laying down the law, won't you? And um, for some of us, we might not want to think about authority at all. We might think, oh, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone to look out, to look out for me. But the original meaning of the word authority is is it means out of the original stuff. That's not the technical term. I've just paraphrased that a bit. Out of the original stuff, from the source. And Jesus shows in this passage we're looking at today that he is the source of three different spheres of life. Now, what we're going to see is that he has authority over the intellect, the mind, teaching. He has authority over the physical and he has authority over the spiritual sides of life. And what we're going to look at today is what is the evidence of Jesus? What is the evidence that he has this authority? And what is our response to this? And how we're going to do this is uh, Jill and I, uh, we love a box set. And uh, you may have heard, because I've been raving about this show, that I love, I'm absolutely hooked by Line of Duty. Has anyone else watched Line of Duty? Yes. It's like a TV series that uh, follows uh, the anti-corruption unit of the central police. And what they do is that their role is to stop corrupt and illegal activities within uh, the police force and bring these corrupt officers down. And this uh, show has become famous for these like interview interrogation scenes. And uh, when I think of uh, interviewer interrogation scenes in, in TV shows, I think of uh, like 24, like Jack Bauer shouting at people or uh, causing them physical harm, it all being very, very dramatic and be like, where is he? Where is the bomb? And things like that. And it, but this is very, very different. What happens in these interview scenes in Line of Duty? See, very carefully, without any fuss, they just bring forward little pieces of evidence, bit by bit. And some of these things are like completely unrelated at the start. Uh, they talk about parking tickets, or they talk about um, things that they maybe mislaid, or where their car was one night. And slowly by slowly, it's all these pieces of the jigsaw get put together until there's just this case against this person. And the overwhelming result is that they are guilty. And that's the revelation that they are guilty. And you see that person at the start, they're like really confident going into this interview. And then suddenly by the end, they're like, oh my goodness, they've got me. And the point is that Mark, the writer of this book, in this passage, is bringing together this jigsaw from different areas of life, piece by piece, to show uh, that Jesus, for who he really is, Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the author of authority. And Brenda and Zoe, who are getting baptized today, they've examined the evidence for that. They've looked, they've searched, and they've said, yes, Jesus is who he says he is. They've not done it just blindly, but they've looked and they've explored. And I would encourage anyone to do that as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to read this verse in Mark, starting in verse 21. It will appear on screen. Uh, In the Bibles, it's page 1002. And if you have a digital version, there won't be a page for that, but I'm sure you'll find it. 
So let's read this. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, and come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. The people were all so amazed, and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, he took her, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Amen. So for some of us, that passage might be um, a little bit weird. There might be a few things that we might think, I've never heard that before, or that sounds completely preposterous. For some of us, we might hear that and think, okay, I get that. But what we're looking at today again is um, Jesus' authority and our response to that. So the first thing that Jesus has authority over is he has authority over the intellectual sphere of life. So Jesus arrives in this town in Capernaum, uh, and like many towns, this town has a synagogue. And uh, about 500, 450, 500 years before Jesus was on this earth, uh, many towns set up these synagogues, not only to be places of worship, but also schooling for young boys. And these schools, they were training grounds for the religious leaders uh, of the time. And boys would attend in the week and would learn the first five books of the Bible, uh, what is known as the law, or if you want to be really fancy, the Torah. And um, they would learn these cover to cover, inside out, back to front, every day for their schooling education. Sounds fun, doesn't it? And um, these schools, uh, they would start at this age and then gradually... As they went through, uh, the teachers would be identifying people who were really good at this and some who were maybe not quite so good. And for the ones that were good, they were like, keep going, we'll keep teaching you. For the others, they were like, maybe just go back to your dad, uh, learn how to do the normal trade like carpentry or the plumbing or electrician or things like that. All those things that were obviously there in the time in those days. And um, these schools, they would be so elite that eventually these uh, young men would be then brought in by the local rabbis, the local teachers, and they would say, right, you come, you follow me. I will teach you how to be that teacher. I will teach you how to be the rabbi, kind of bring in that profession. But for all those that missed out, for those that weren't made the cut, weren't good enough, they had to go back, learn a new skill, and their teaching stopped there. As well as that, at the weekend, uh, these synagogues didn't usually have a resident teacher who was always there. 
So often guest speakers would come, uh, they would teach, and the locals would often try and share ideas as well. It would be a breeding ground where they could like try out some new ideas, try out some new thoughts, uh, work out um, what they believed. And I kind of think of it as like the modern equivalent would be like a TED Talk, where there's people coming from all different areas of life, all kind of learning, all this kind of creative stuff. Some of it really good, but some of it maybe not quite as good as well. And um, the elite came to teach, and the people came. But when Jesus came, He made an instant impact. And I like to think of it like this. I don't know if many of you have seen this film, but have any of you seen the first Men in Black film? Anyone? Yeah, go with me. I promise you. So, the first Men in Black film, it's one of my favorite films growing up. I remember it. You know, it's got Will Smith. He was, like, cool at the time. He did that thing where he put on his shades, and he was like, I make this look good. And I always thought when I put on my shades when I was, like, younger, I was like, I make this look good. I probably wasn't, but I, I like to think I was. And um, it's a sci-fi adventure where this organization is created uh, to protect alien life. And they are called the Men in Black, the MIB. There's a rap to it. I won't go into it, but you can look it up. And one of the early scenes, you've got Will Smith's character called James Edwards. And he's this uh, no-nonsense uh, police detective in the NYPD. Uh, and he is recruited into this organization. And there's, he comes into this room. And there's like about 10 people in this room. There are all these recruits uh, from different areas of the military. So you've got the Air Force, you've got the Army, uh, you've got what other areas you can have. All these areas. And they're sitting in this room. And the guy says, like, you guys are the best of the best of the best. You guys are a cut above the rest. But to get into this organization, you need to do a couple of tests. And the first thing they do is this written exam. And the thing that's happening is they're all sitting in these, like, egg-shaped chairs all around the room. And they've got this pen, pencil, and they've got this exam paper. Now, I don't know, if you don't usually um, sit an exam without a kind of something to lean on, it's quite difficult. So all these guys are like, they're like really clever, they're really at the top of their game, and they're like trying to like write this exam, and like sometimes their pencil goes through uh, the, the paper, sometimes they're like trying to like write it on the side of the egg-shaped chair, nothing happens. They're like all like really, really struggling, some of them break their pencils. And you see this scene where all of them are doing that, and then it's interrupted by this massive, like, awful screeching noise as Will Smith has spotted the coffee table that is in the middle of the room, and he drags it over to his chair, and then he starts writing the exam on the coffee table. And everyone's, like, looking at him, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And you might be thinking, Ali, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) But the point is that in that moment, James Edwards, he changed the game. He changed what the test was about. The exam wasn't important. It was how do you actually write the exam? How do you work in this working environment? And with that loud screech, he entered and he changed that. And similarly, Jesus is coming into this synagogue where they've all been trying to teach with this slightly kind of different authority. They've trying to be doing stuff. And Jesus just comes in and he says, no, it's totally different to what you would ever expect. He's saying that the people were amazed by his teaching, the authority he had. These teachers before, they were teaching the law. They were saying, you need to abide by these rules. You need to um, point away from themselves, but to God. But Jesus comes with that impact. He says, it's not about rules, but it's about relationship with me. 
It's about intimacy with God. And controversially at the time, but incredible, was that he didn't point away from himself, but he says, if you want to know God, you need to know me. He was showing that he was the son of God. In his first sermon he ever preached, we find this in Luke 4, he quotes an Old Testament book and he says, I have been anointed to proclaim good news, to bring freedom to the prisoners, to set the captives free. And he finishes and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's saying, actually, to find God, you just need to come to me. You don't need to do these rules, but you need to come to me. And society, as a society, we've improved in science, we've improved in technology, we've improved in many different ways in medicine. But the moral teaching, the moral statements that we hear from Jesus have not been improved upon. Many of our laws have been founded on those teachings. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. They're the type of thing that God would say if he were here. And Jesus' teaching was for all. It was a teaching for those who were the high class of society, but also those who were in the low end as well. It was for all, not just the elite. And Jesus has shown he has authority over the intellectual sphere, over the mind. It's not just for the elite, but anyone can come into a relationship with God. So he has authority over the intellect. He also has authority over the physical. In verses 30 to 31, we see Jesus having authority over the body. It says, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed. Jesus was told about her. He went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. The fever left, left her. She began to wait on them. Jesus, time and again in his ministry, showed he had authority over the body by healing illnesses, healing diseases. And for some of us, I know that we struggle to believe that. We struggle to um, Look at what happened there and believe that that is true. And there's a tension there. But when we talk about healing, that some of us have prayed and something's happened. Some of us have prayed and nothing has happened. Some of us might be suffering from illnesses right now. And we might think, how on earth can I do that? I think about um, Andy Robertson, Brenda's husband, who faithfully serves on a Saturday morning, uh, doing a thing we call the miracle question, which basically is asking people, if God could do one miracle in your life, what would that be? And Andy will faithfully pray for people. And sometimes those situations will change. Sometimes nothing will happen. And we have that tension. We have a theology where we call that the now, the kingdom of God is now, but also it's not yet. It's not here in its fullness. But there's a quote by Corrie Ten Boom that says, that I love actually, that if you're in a tunnel, if you're in a train and you're in a tunnel and it goes dark, the train stops. You don't jump out and run away. You sit still and you trust the engineer. And for us, for those that believe that, we need to sometimes sit still and trust the engineer. We can't always answer that question. But in the life of Jesus, we see the hope we can have that there is healing in this life. Let me tell you some stories about Jesus. Jesus uh, was able to heal someone, this lady who was uh, suffering from internal bleeding for so many years. She just touched the hem of his cloak. She was instantly healed. He healed uh, the centurion's son. A centurion came to him and said, I believe you can heal. And he said he would. And at that moment, with that word, 
The centurion's son wasn't even there and he was healed. He tells the man who's on the mat to get up and walk. He tells your sins are forgiven. He puts mud pies in the eyes of the blind man. And then as he washes the mud pies away, he can see. And he called Lazarus, his great friend, out of the grave. Jesus has authority over the physical sphere. He gives us hope to pray. If we pray for people, some will get healed. If we don't, none will get healed. And the greatest example of Jesus having that authority over the physical sphere was him dying on the cross, then three days later rising from the grave. Where the Apostle Paul writes, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? We don't always understand. It doesn't always happen when we believe. But Jesus has authority over the physical sphere. And finally, Jesus has authority over the spiritual sphere. So we go back to this uh, this story. Now, if I'd been a bit of a coward or a bit worried, I might have not actually talked about this because this is a weird story. Even for my hearing, this is a bit weird where this happens where Jesus drives out an impure spirit from someone. With six words, this thing comes out of him. And you might think that's not relevant today. That, that's, that doesn't mean anything, actually. So, I'll give you a little bit of an illustration to help you. So Jill and I, we've been living in Stonehaven for about two years. And we have this uh, little two-bedroom flat. It's lovely. We love this flat, except one thing. Uh, so when we got it, it was all working fine. But maybe maybe a month or so into it, our fan in our uh, bathroom stopped working. And uh, so that meant that um, every morning we'd wake up, we'd have our shower. And then just as I was maybe washing my face, I'd get a little bit of a drip on my head as this water was coming back down because the fan wasn't working properly. So we tried everything to get this fixed. We bought a new fan. Uh, that was for a while, but then the drips kept coming. We bought a fan booster to boost the fan. That didn't work. Well, it worked for a while. It didn't work. We opened the windows. We cleaned the fan tubing. We put insulation uh, stuff round the fan to help it keep insulated. I don't know. It wasn't very technical. But still, it kept on dripping. It kept on dripping. And every morning was just reminded that this wasn't working because you just got a little bit of water on your head. And you're like, oh, fan's still not working. That was until we explored the loft more fully. And I say we, I mean Jill explored the loft more fully. She went up. Yeah, I failed as a husband there. I did not go up into the loft. Jill went up into the loft. And what she'd worked out was that the piping where the, where the water was going out, it was actually too high. So even whatever we were doing, no matter what we were doing, the piping, we had to rearrange the piping so that it was, it was not as high, so that the water would actually stay where it was supposed to go, as opposed to drip down. We could have kept that fan on all day, we'd have still got dripped on. No matter what we did, the drips kept coming. And the point of that is, what happens above affects us down below, doesn't it? And for most of us, we recognize that there is something in this life. There are things in this life that are beyond our control. We are aware that there are things that aren't good in this world, that we would class as evil. There are things that we would class as good. But they're out of our control. And in the Bible, in Ephesians 6, it says, Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, against authorities, against the powers that are there. And Jesus shows he has authority over the spiritual sphere of life. We see that in Mark 5, 
where there's this, this guy on the edge of a town. And he is living among the tombs. He's been excluded from society. He's chained up, wrapped in chains, no hope at all. I know in my life, and for some of us here in our lives, there are parts of our life where there is death, where it feels like nothing is alive. Jesus brings the spirits out of that man. He restores that man. He's included back into society. And Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. It says in John 8 that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus has authority over the intellect, over the physical, and over the spiritual. And very quickly, you might be thinking, so what? That's very good for Jesus, but what does that mean for my life? So two responses that we can have to Jesus when we hear that. The first thing is we can submit to his authority. Jill and I, we went on holiday this year. We went to the States. It was great, but one of the things I really struggled with to start with was that I had to learn how to drive an automatic car, which I'd never driven before, and I had to learn how to drive on the right-hand side of the road as well. I mean, technically, it's the right-hand side of the road, but you all know that it's the wrong side of the road, don't we? It's, it's really the wrong side of the road. And uh, it took a bit of time to get used to, um, but eventually, I quite enjoyed driving in the States, actually. Um, you could do that thing where if it's a red light, but you're going right, you can still go. So you're like, oh, happy days. I also like the fact that it was almost like a little bit like a go-kart driving... Uh, an automatic car. I'd never thought that before because I didn't have to use, once I got used to not kind of trying to grab the window instead of the gear stick, I was like, brilliant, this is fun. Uh, It was okay, survived, no scrapes, nothing happened, don't worry. Um, But one of the things I noticed is when you come to a junction in the UK, uh, you have this sign and it says, give way, doesn't it? And I think in the UK, I, I hear that with a British accent, I think that's quite polite and I think, If you don't mind, if you could give way to the cars coming on at the side, then that would be fine. And I hear that and I think, okay, right, that's fine. The States is different. Got this big sign, big letters, capital, bold, the biggest font, and it says yield. And it shouts at you. It's like yield. The point is, it's not a word that we use often these days, but the point is we need to yield sometimes. We need to submit to authority above us and we see here that from the reactions of the crowd the reactions of those that are healed they yield they submit to his authority the testimonies of brenda and of zoe are exactly that they've recognized i can't do this life on my own it's too difficult i need jesus in my life i need to submit to his authority and i will live life to the fullest under him Jesus is asking us to submit to his authority. He won't rule over us, but will offer relationship with him. So we can submit to his authority. And finally, he asks us to come to the door. The last couple of verses in this passage shows what our response should be. In verse 32, it says, after sunset, people brought the sick to Jesus. And verse 33, it said, the whole town gathered at the door. So this scene was taking place at the Sabbath Uh, It was a day of rest, and technically by the Pharisees, you weren't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. But when sunset came, that meant that that was the day over. So the people, they didn't want to get in trouble, but it was like as soon as that sun went down, they rushed to where Jesus was, and they banged on the door. 
Imagine if you walked out of your house tomorrow morning, wherever you are, Stonehaven, Newton Hill, Inverbervie, Muckles, wherever that looks, and the whole town is at your door. What would you do? I just couldn't understand it. I'd be like, um, have to form an orderly line, maybe do a number system. I don't know. The whole town was there. Often submitting to authority is hard enough. But it shows in this passage, we sometimes need to move to make that first step. And when we make a little step, we maybe move an inch. Jesus will move a mile to come and to meet with us. I don't know what you're struggling with today. You might be struggling with something physical, maybe something um, that you just can't get rid of, maybe an addiction of some kind, or maybe you just lack direction, purpose, and meaning in life. We see here, when the crowd went to the door, Jesus met their needs. His authority isn't like the authority we're used to. We are welcomed into his family. We are kind of co-heirs with him. We inherit what he inherits, and we get to play our part. I'll finish with this. It says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We might have been under authority where we feel oppressed or feel like we're carrying something. We might feel like the authority we're carrying, we're struggling with. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why don't we stand?